It is good to be here. If you have your Bibles tonight, we're going to be in 1 Samuel in chapter 17, and uh, we have a little bit of a different sermon. I noticed the past couple of, of months, I think, I've opened up with that statement that, now I'm going to be looking at you the whole time tonight, just to let you know, since you're sat here with that computer behind you. So, all right, so I'm, going to, so I'm not preaching at you tonight, okay? What happened to Hannah? So we put her a single chair in the back, okay? You guys, are, you guys have worked a plan out here, I think. Amen. But a little bit of a different sermon tonight, I would say. And I know I've been saying this. I've said this a couple of times uh, throughout the, uh, over the last couple of months. And it is. It's still a bit of a different sermon. And uh, some of the verses we're going to come out of is a very familiar story. First uh, Samuel chapter 17 is where we'll be. First Samuel 17. And we're going to begin in verse 1. There's a lot of reading tonight. I will tell you that as well. And, uh, you know, I think it's great that we get the Word of God into our hearts and our minds. And uh, we hear it uh, repetitively. It's what's going to help us out throughout uh, the days, the weeks, and the years. So in First Samuel 17, just to give a, an extreme backstory here, beginning in verse 1. The Bible says, now the Philistines gathered together their armies to battle and were, ga- and were gathered together at Soko, which belongeth to Judah and pits between Soko, Aske, and Ephraim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together and pitched by the valley of Elam and set the battle in array against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side and there was a valley between them. And there went out a champion out of the camp of the Philistines named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. And he had a helmet of brass upon his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was five a, a thousand shekels of brass. And he had greaves of brass upon his legs and a target of brass between his shoulders. And the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head uh, weighed 600 shekels of iron, and one bear and his shield went before him, and he stood and cried unto the armies of Israel, and said unto them, Why are ye come out to set your battle in array? Am not I a Philistine, and ye servants to Saul? Choose you a man for you, and let him come down to me. If he be able to fight with me and to kill me, then we will be your servants." But if I prevail against him and kill him, then shall ye be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And when Saul and all Israel heard those words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now, the thing that I want to say in the forefront tonight is that this is not another David versus Goliath sermon. This is not another uh, uh, Goliath must fall or you must kill your giants. All of that is true, by the way. None of it is, um, is, is being taken lightly. This is not your typical, typical scene. So, you know, the central theme is not you focusing on facing your giants tonight, although it, will, it sure will, uh, will apply, uh, apply in your life. Uh, it will assist us in having a victorious life over the giants in our life. And that, that's the sermon that, that is to come here in the weeks, uh, is living a victorious life. How can we can live in victory, and how we can live in victory even in the midst of defeat, and how we can live in victory even in the midst of darkness, and how we can live in victory even in the midst of being dismayed, as you see the armies of Israel who were dismayed. Dismayed means to be almost discombobulated with what was going on. I want you to notice with me here that this giant, this Philistine, this uh, uh, Goliath of Gath, he stood nine and a half feet tall. He defied not only Israel, 
not only Israel, but their army. He defied their king. But what I want you to pay close attention to this evening is he defied their God, our God. And the end result of the defiance was Israel was afraid. They had fear in their life. The chosen nation of God who were delivered from enemies over and over and over again for numerous occasions stood on one side of that valley of Elah, shaken in their boots, so to speak. Maybe shaken in their sandals, you could say. They were in utter fear. And I want to pick up in the story here in verse 12 through 24. It says, Now David was the son of that Ephrathite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse. And he had eight sons, and the man went among men uh, for an old man in the days of Saul. And the three eldest sons of Jesse went and followed Saul to battle. And the names of these three sons that went to battle were Eliab, the firstborn. The next was Abinadab, and the third was Shammah. And David was the youngest, and the, uh, and the three eldest followed Saul. Verse 15. But David went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep. At Bethlehem, and the Philistine drew near, uh, and the Philistine drew near morning and evening, and presented himself forty days. And Jesse said unto David his son, Take now for thy brethren an ephah of this parched corn and these ten loaves, and run to the camp to thy brethren. Verse eighteen. And carry these ten cheeses unto the captain of their thousand, and and look how thy brethren fare, and take their pledge. Now Saul. And they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Eli fighting with the Philistines. And David rose up early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the trench as the host was going forth to fight him, shouted for the battle. For Israel and the Philistines had put to battle in array, army against army. And David left his carriage and the hand of the keeper of the carriage and ran into the army and came and saluted his brethren And as he talked with them, behold, there came up the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, out of the armies of the Philistine, and spake according to the same words, and David heard them. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were sore afraid. Now, guys, listen here tonight. For 40 days, every day, this champion of Gath, came out to defy the nations and the armies and the king and the God of Israel. The the men of Israel way over here, when it first started, uh, they were dismayed. They were shocked. They were they were they were confounded and but they were greatly afraid. And by the time we get into this day number 40, the Bible says they're sore afraid. You know what it means to be sore afraid? It's fear that strikes you to your bone. It's fear that has a physical counterpart to it that hurts in every aspect of your brain. Neurologists say that this type of fear is something that heightens the, the nerves in your body to where sometimes you even experience the feeling as you're on fire. This is what they are, sore afraid. The men of Israel were sore afraid, and, and they, were, they were fleeing from the area. The verbal onslaught of the giant was taking its toll on the people there, on the king. The continual attack and threats now moved the army from their battle stations. And with every flinch of the giant, they would flee from his presence. All of this happened for 40 days, guys, over a month. But on this day, David heard the words. You know, that little shepherd boy, this little young teenager, this lad, who's bringing some cheese and some loaves of bread and some meat for the people to eat, some corn. His heart was stirred up. 
I, I want to say this before we go into point number one. When your heart gets stirred up for something that is righteous, when your heart gets stirred up for something that is right, that is truth, when your heart gets stirred up for something that is, that is built around our God, you know for a fact the Lord is moving. But may, mark it down. When the Lord begins to move, the devil does as well. I want you to notice with me as David was moved in his heart, I want you to notice the criticism with me this evening. The criticism. In verses 25 through 29, and the men of Israel said, uh, have you seen this man that come up? And it says, uh, surely to divide Israel is he to come up, and, and it shall be that the man who killeth him, the king will enrich him with great riches, and, and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David spake to the men that stood by him, saying, what shall be done uh, to the man that killeth the Philist, this Philistine and taketh away the reproach from Israel? And for who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Do you notice that question that David says? Forty days, these men of battle, forty days, this army has shaken and feared and ran away every time Goliath showed up. And the shepherd boy comes up and says, who's this guy? He's just some uncircumcised uh, Philistine. That is to say, some unclean, filthy heathen is what he's saying. He's no one to us. That's our God up there. You understand? Keep reading with me. And he says uh, that he should defy the armies of the living God. Verse 27. And the people answered him after this manner, saying, So shall it be done to the man that killeth him. And Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spake unto the men. And Eliab's anger was, was kindled against David. And he said, Why camest thou down hither? And with whom hast thou left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know thy pride and thy naughty, the naughtiness of thine heart. For thou art come down that thou mightest see the battle. And David said, what have I now done? Is there not a cause? I mean, David's brothers brothers could see in, that his, in, their, in his eyes that his heart was stirred. Better yet, they could see that the devil knew that the spiritual battle was going to occur long before the tale of David slaying the giant that we know so well. We tell our youth club about this story. You hear it about in sporting events. When it's a, an underdog versus a mighty team, this is really a David and Goliath story. We, you hear it all the time. The devil knew there was a spiritual battle that would occur long before this story would be made famous. You mark it down, guys, when anybody, anyone begins to defy the work of God, you can count on it that Satan is directly behind the criticism and the confrontation. You know, criticism is part of our life. No one likes it, and I'm not telling you you should like it. Too many work, uh, work to be perfect. They strive, and, and they, they take an onslaught of criticism from a multitude of different people, often ourselves. Did you know that studies have revealed that the average person endures a multiplicity of criticisms from their closest workmates and family members every single day? And also, did you know that the average woman today criticizes herself eight times a day? Criticism. David says, they're not a cause. Who's this guy? Who's this guy? He's talking about our God. He's talking about our nation. He's talking about our king. He's talking about our brethren, our blood, our family. He's, he's talking about us. He's defying the living God, not these pagans, Dagon, that they worship, this half man, half fish thing that sat in their temple. 
He's defying our God, the one that delivered our family from Egypt. He's defying our God who carried them through the wilderness for 40 years. He's defying our God who opened up the Red Sea and opened up the Jordan. He's defying our God, and he's doing so close in our land. Is there not a cause? And what's the result? His brother steps up and criticizes him. I know that naughtiness. I know the pride of thy heart, he says. There's always going to be someone in this world today who's going to criticize or complain about everything. There's always going to be someone who is unhappy with the way things are operating or in the manner life is simply going. But you're going to find, as a rule, those who complain about the way the ball bounces are usually the ones who've dropped it in the beginning. That's the root of criticism. It's no different than Matthew 16 when the Lord rebuked Peter. and uh, He said, get thee behind me, Satan. The people of God uh, who are in tune with uh, serving the Lord and have no hidden agenda, uh, guys, they do not work. They're not working against the Lord. Guys, those who have no hidden agenda, they're working to strive to make this world or our life better for the cause of Christ. Is there not a cause, he said? And we're just trying to do something that is right. But the critical mind are criticizing you. In David's case, it was his family. Sometimes it's going to come from your friends. Other times it's going to come from your foes. For David, it was his brothers. Do you know that the average pastor, the average pastor leaves a church over eight critics? Eight critics. What I have found in my life, when the pastor leaves, the problems stay. When the pastor stays, the problems leave. David simply said, is there not a cause? I, I got. I'll say that probably a half a dozen more times tonight because I absolutely love it. I love how these these trained men of war are shaking in their boots, fearful, and this little shepherd boy. Is there not a cause? He's talking about our God. Guys, yes, there is a cause. The entire army and the king has stood by there for 40 days, becoming more and more and more afraid, listening to the words of this giant, absorbing every onslaught, mentally allowing the enemy of God uh, to win the battle of the mind, to affect their emotions, and all of these things happen. And when we continually give ear to the giants in our life, be it sin or whatever it is, when we listen to Satan after a while, we lose the vision of the life that God has given us. We lose the vision for the, the plan of the church, for his purpose, for its purity, for God's plan in our days. We cave to culture. We eventually become a statistic, a mere victim, living a life away from victory. That's criticism. That's the wickedness onslaught of criticism. I understand critical thinking. And I understand constructive criticism. I understand all those things. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be able to endure constructive criticism. When we do something wrong or do something wrong, we need to be corrected. That's how we get better. There's nothing wrong with that, okay? Everybody doesn't get a blue ribbon. We've, we've talked about this time and time again. You're going to lose, man. There's going to be winners and there's going to be losers. That's, that's life, amen. And to teach our children otherwise is robbing them of what's going to strengthen them for the life that is set before them. But criticism, you understand, when it's built in this manner, is rooted and grounded in a spiritual battle. And that's what David was experiencing. But I want you to notice the commendation. Notice the commendation with me. I told you a lot of reading here tonight. Verses 30 through 33, and then we're going to skip to verse 38. 
It says, and he turned from him toward another and spake after the same manner. David's going, is there not a cause? Is there not a cause? He's trying to find someone to say, look, don't you agree with me? He's saying, is there not a cause? Can't, well, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? What is he supposed to be doing? He's nothing. Verse 31. And when the words were heard which David spake, they rehearsed them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Thy servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, thou art not able to go against this Philistine to fight for him, for thou art but a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. And Saul armed David with his armor, and he put on a helmet of brass upon his head, and and he also armed him with a coat of mail. Saul commended him into battle. He gave him his blessing, but I want you to stop and look. I told you, not a typical uh, you know, David and Goliath message. What did he commend him with? He commended him by the natural man. He commended him by what Saul trusted in, which is the armor made by the hands of man. You see, Saul's faith was in his ability. Saul stood head and shoulders above everyone. It was based upon what he could do. Saul's trust was not in God, but rather in the, the tactical strategy of a man-made armor. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14 tells us, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they, speaking about the things of the Spirit of God, they're spiritually discerned. Beloved, a lost person cannot cognitively understand the things of the Spirit of God. The natural man cannot spiritually understand the Scriptures, nor can the natural man understand spiritual matters. They are, under, they, they, they are understood only by the way of the Holy Spirit of God. A natural man only sees things through their own wisdom which the Bible tells us for the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he that taketh, uh, taketh the wise in their own craftiness. How often do we do the same thing? Let me ask you a question. How often have we muscled the will of God in our life? How often have we sought God for answers only to want him, his blessings upon what we have already decided? You see, in reality, when my will and God's will differ, my prayer should be the very same thing of my Lord's prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but thine be done. Ultimately, my friend, if we are going into battle trusting our own strength and our own ability, we are limited by our own frailties. And if by chance we are successful, we receive the accolades, which will, as history has proven, render a downward spiral of humanity. So Saul commended him, but only via the natural man. Notice with me, though, tonight, and we're working to a close, I promise. I want you to notice David's confidence. In verse 34, I told you we had skipped down to verse 38. This was his response when he stuck all that metal on him. <laughs> this was his response when, when David said, listen, man, I'll go fight this giant. Saul's getting ready to put the armor on him. He says, your servant will go fight this giant. Let me tell you a story, he says, verse 34. And David said unto Saul, thy servant kept his father's sheep. 
And there came a lion and a bear and took a lamb out of the flock. And I went out after him and smote him and delivered him in out of his mouth. And when he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and smote him and slew him. <laughs> My servant slew both the lion and the bear. Now watch this. And this uncircumcised Philistine, that nine and a half foot tall man, shall be as one of them, seeing he's defied the armies of the living God. David said, moreover, the Lord had delivered me out of the paw of the lion and out of the paw of the bear. Uh, he says, uh, he will deliver me out of the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with thee. And now we find verse 38, when he, ar- he gave him his armor, his coat of mail and all of that. Beloved, David's confidence was solely in God, not himself. Nowhere do we find in this, the events with the lion and the bear and even uh, Goliath, do we ever find that David was taking credit for doing anything. His confidence was based on what God has already done in his life. From the mouth of the lion to the paw of the bear, the Lord delivered him. And herein rests the key in our life. David looks at this Philistine as just another animal whom God will deliver him uh, and the nation of Israel from. It's not a reflection of Goliath's weakness, nor is it a, a testimony of David's strength, but rather it's to the glory of God. The battle uh, is his to be won. It's the Lord's to be won. And there was confidence that the Lord gave David from past deliveries, past deliveries, Notice we find in verse 38 there when he, he, um, Saul put this armor on him. It says, And Saul uh, armed David with his armor and put his helmet of brass upon his head, and also he armed with a coat of mail. This is verse 39. And David girded his sword upon the armor, and he essayed to go. For he had, he had not proved them. And David said unto Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not proved them. And David put them off. Now imagine, I'm looking at this little ruddy kid, the Bible calls him. Ruddy means red, actually, but this, this teenager. And Saul's probably six foot something. He's head and shoulders, the Bible says, above everyone else. And he's going to stick his armor on there. He looked like a flock of quails had flown out of his clothes is what he probably looked like. And here's all David standing there, and this sword and this armor and all that. And he's thinking, what in the world, man? I don't need this. You see, that armor was a picture of the natural man. But to David, they were unproven. And to David, God had already proved himself. The armor that Saul had given him, they were simply unworthy, untrustworthy. And why? I mean, I'm sure they were made of the finest metals. More than likely, they were made of the, the strongest metals, the strongest battle metal in the country. They were made for the king. They were designed to preserve the life of the king. But to David, they were but a hindrance. Think about it after these terms. What would be the harm? Just think about it. What would be the harm for David to go in battle with the armor? Now, God had already delivered him out of the mouth of the lion and out of the paw of the bear. And, you know, he did something that, that I don't know anybody in their right mind would do, chase after a lion and a bear. But he did it, and he won, and he, he, he saved the lamb, yeah? So what would be the harm if David said, you know what? I'm going to trust God. God's going to get me through this battle. I'm just going to chuck on this armor. It'll be all right. God's going to win anyway. Still take the rock, still take the sling, but just have the armor and the sword there just in case the sling didn't work, just in case the rocks missed, right? You know what that's called, friend? It's called a backup plan. That's called plan B. Where I understand in certain areas of our life, there's probably not a bad idea to have, have plans, to be prepared, to uh, Within the work of God, we don't have backup plans. 
When you're doing the work for the Lord, there's no what ifs. God's laid that on your heart. You hunker down and you do it. God's given you a clear vision of what the Lord needs us to do. You know what we do? We tighten up our big boy britches, man. We sink our heels down in the stirrups and we get after it. That's what David did. The Lord is only pleased when we have faith in him, when we have a full portion of faith. David said these aren't proven. He respectfully declined and went his way into the valley, into battle. How many times has the Lord answered our prayers? And how many times has the Lord fought our battles? How many times has the Lord proven he is real? How many times has he showed his love for his people and his desires that his name be glorified? More times than we even realize. I praise the Lord we are a blessed. I'm blessed to be part of the ride. That's the way I see it. I, I'm, I mean, a lot of times, I, and I know it's a terrible illustration, a lot of times I feel like one of those little sucker fish on the back of a, of a giant whale shark. Man, I'm just taking every little bit of crumb I can get. I know those things are parasites. That's not really a great illustration. I get it. But, I mean, that's how I feel. I'm just along for the ride, and I, and I thank God for it. Friend, when you look at the battle between David and Goliath, the central theme is not the defeat of Goliath or the bravery of David. The central theme is that it's all about God. It's just, it's, at the end of the day, it's all about him. Every drop is about him. He and he alone should receive the glory. And as we wind down the sermon tonight, I want you to notice how the Lord received the glory in this whole event. In verse 40, we see, and he took his staff in his hand. What kind of staff did he have? He had a shepherd's staff. It wasn't a battle staff. It wasn't a kung fu staff. It was the shepherd's staff. It's what he was used to using. And he took his staff in his hand, and he chose him five smooth stones from the brook. And he put them in a shepherd's bag, which he had had, even in a script. And his sling was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. Now, we know the story. You know what happened, guys. With one stone, David strikes Goliath's forehead. The Bible tells us a stone sunk into his skull. He falls forward. David takes Goliath's own sword and whacks his head off. Victory. There you go. What a scene. What a sight. One stone, one sling, one strike, done and dusted, no more Goliath. But the Bible says that he chose five stones. Why five? Why five stones? Remember, guys, the battle's not about David's bravery. The battle is not about the defeat of Goliath. That's not the central theme. The battle is that it's all about God. And God is laying a precedence for us today, even all the way back in the Valley of Eli, recorded in 1 Samuel 17. Before you and I were even a, a thought or a glimpse in this world today, yet God knew exactly what he was going to do with you and with me, where we were going to be, all of these things. He knew it all. He set a precedence for us. You see, this battle, guys, enables us. This cause that David was referring to in verse 29 of 1 Samuel 17, a cause which continues today in our very lives, in our day-to-day -day living, with battles seen and unseen that we face just in our activities of daily living. That's what he was setting the precedent for. So why five? Why not just one? I've heard men teach different things. Well, Goliath had, you know, four brothers, hogwash. 
You only got a couple of them that are listed, so don't ever listen to that. Well, it was just in case he missed. Come on, man. David had more confidence in his pinky that God was going to win that battle than any one of those, those military men out there, yeah? There wasn't a backup plan times four. You see, I believe there's a New Testament correlation to answer this very question that ties in beautifully with the famous valley, a famous battle in the Valley of Eli between David and Goliath, and it's found in Paul's epistle to the church. Matter of fact, to a church that he rebuked more than any other church. And it's to be praised tonight. First Corinthians chapter 1. You know, it says there, it says, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the things of the wise. God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things of the mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and the things which are not to bring to naught the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Five smooth stones God chose. You see, those five things at one time, they were rough. They were rough stones. The Bible's very clear. There's, listen, every word has its purpose and its reason. And, and the Bible was very clear that it said, hey, five smooth stones. And in our mind, we may think, why didn't he get one of those jagged stones? Because that's going to hurt worse. But no, David chose five smooth stones. In all of my heart, I believe that David chose these five smooth stones with a purpose, whether or not he reached down and just grabbed a handful or whether he searched them out is unknown. But I want you to remember, these stones came from a brook where that water ran across those stones continually every single day for hundreds, if not a thousand years. And when one side, when one side would become smooth, God's omnipotent somehow, some way, he'd just flip it over and he'd let, it, let that water run all over it again. So it became a smooth stone, all prepared for the day of battle so God would be glorified, not a giant and not a man, so that no flesh would glory in his presence. What am I saying to you here tonight? What I'm saying to you here tonight is that each one of us tonight, we are one of these stones, and God's chosen you. You may be part of the weak, part of the not, part of the base. I don't know. But I know you got a purpose. I know you got a reason. And some of you may not be as smooth as that stone right there this evening, but you know what? God's working on you. And he's letting that water of the Holy Spirit of God continue to roll over you and roll over you and roll over you. And he's smoothing you. And when he gets you smooth on one side, he's going to flip you over. And he's going to work on the other side until he gets you to where he needs you. And you know what's going to happen, Sue? He's going to put you in the battle. That's when he's going to put you in the forefront. Rachel, that's when the trials of this life are going to come your way, and all of a sudden you're going to prove, you're going to be that thing that is not to prove and dismay those things that are. And you'll do more, Hannah, than you can ever imagine in your life because your faith and your trust, Natalie, is not in yourself. It's not in your ability, but it's in the God of heaven. You see, my friend, he has promised. He's given us a promise in this life. That Paul said, but my God 
shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Beloved, the work of God, the ministry of Christ, the life of the bride of Christ tonight is all about God. And as he continues to work on you and I and smooth us up and knock off our rough edges and get us to where we need to be, it's at the end of the day, it's going to be about him. So, beloved, when things come your way, when that water is a little bit heavy, when it seems like sometimes it's a little harsh on you and it seems to be flowing a little too strong and you just don't know that you can bear it, go back to that other delivery that God provided in your life, just like David did, be it a lion, be it a bear, and say, this uncircumcised Philistine, he ain't nothing. Let the water roll so that God may smooth you to prepare you for that day of battle. Will you bow your heads tonight? Father in heaven, we thank you for who and what you are, for the many blessings you've given us. We ask you, Lord, to bless the rest of this night. Pray you take your holy word this evening and apply it into our hearts. I pray we take it personal this evening. I pray we would look upon the inspired, preserved, purified words that we have here on these pages, and we would write them upon the table of our heart that we look at what this central theme of this battle, this victory in the valley of Elah, and we may apply it into our life. Understand clearly that it's all about you. Father in heaven, we ask all of these things tonight in the name of our precious Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen and amen.